Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I have the extreme pleasure of sitting down with Justin Cronel, president and partner at Monta Watch. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on today. Been looking forward to this one for a little while now. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your personal and professional career journeys to date? I would love to. And Peter, thank you so much for having me on. I always love doing this. Um, In the watch industry, the thing I'm probably most fond of is you never know who you're going to meet in this world. That's right. And this conversation today is a, a perfect example of that. But as you alluded, my professional life did not start in the watch industry. Uh, going back to second grade, um, like every other, you know, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old boy, yeah. I had to have every new pair of Air Jordans that ever came out. Um, I was obsessed with Michael Jordan and basketball in general, and yep. that led me to Nike, and led me to understand the business a little bit as a as a youngster. And thanks to my parents, they took that as a, a point to educate me in that regard. And that created my fascination with the world of finance because right. that same year, they gave me a few shares of Nike stock and they oh, printed cool. the stock certificate. Yeah. And um, framed it, put it above my bed, started checking the USA Today stock section uh, every weekend with my dad at the breakfast table to see what the price had done and then do the math in my head and see how much or how little money I had made. <laughs> and um, so that that propelled the, the financial passion. And... Um, Went forward to uh, high school and college, kept it up, um, had a valuable lesson, took all of my money from high school graduation and put it in a, a goofy penny stock during the tech boom and, and lost 90% of it. So um, <laughs> you know, they say you, you learn best from your mistakes. I learned a really yeah. good one there. And then fast forward to, uh, to college undergrad at St. Louis University, majored in finance. I was one of those rare people that actually knew what they wanted to do going into school. Yeah. And... Got a job right out of college, uh, working with the, the team that I worked with my entire 13 years in that career, um, doing financial planning, got my CFP certification and, and really enjoyed doing it. Was very passionate about the people, carried that passion for the markets forward. But my passion for watches really started creeping in. And that, that probably started back in, in high school and college. Um, okay. My first watch as a kid, I still have it, but it was it was just a watch. I didn't really know much about it until I really started learning more as I got older. And um, lo and behold, I met my now business partner, Michael Demartini, uh, because he had started another business that makes watch straps. And I bought one of those for one of my watches and um, had no idea the company was based here in St. Louis. And so um, here we are almost seven years later uh, as business partners with the Monta Watch Company. And, um, as I always say, when I do these interviews like this is that for the, the one time in my life, I was at the right time at the right place. Yeah. I had the courage, the wherewithal, the, the foresight to say, I'm going to take a huge risk. I was 35 years old at the time and and walk away from the sure thing in finance and go after my passion. And it's, it's the thing I'm, I'm most proud of. It's a very cool story. And especially, you know, as a parent of two young daughters, four and two years old, this idea of, you know, buying a stock for your child that you then 
engage with them over time to help them understand how it grows, how the price fluctuates, that is tied to something they're interested in. Uh, you and I have a shared passion for sneakers. I, I learned now because I'm also a huge sneakerhead. I have a closet <laughs> full of Jordans and LeBrons and you know endless other sneakers. So we can get into that in a little bit. Um, but yeah. that is just such an, an incredible um, learning tactic that totally shaped your your kind of educational and then professional career from that moment and, and generated a true area of interest. How did, like how soon were you able to reflect back on that and recognize how impactful or important that decision was that your parents made at that moment? Um, the biggest one would have been when I was 15 years old. Yeah. Um, those Nike shares increased in price. The stock split kept going up again, split again. And it became a, a sizable amount of money that allowed me to purchase a pretty cool car when I turned 16. Oh, wow. So that, that was one defining moment right there that was, you know, as a younger person, you're, you're not thinking bigger picture. You're thinking, you know, from home plate to first base. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, wow, I can get a really cool car. And this little bit of money turned into a lot of money. And so that's when it, it, it really solidified. And, um, and to your point, the, the teaching component, I, I have two daughters as well. And so, um, I've tried to do that a little bit with them. There's, um, uh, my brother turned me on to green light capital. It's this little card where you can put money in it, like 20 bucks, five bucks, whatever you want to do. They can buy like ETF indices. They can buy cryptocurrency, but then it's also a debit card. So you can say, Oh, cool. You know, my 12 year old's going out with some friends. There's 20 bucks on there. So you can buy a hamburger and a Coke or whatever. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I love those moments where you, you have something that you can point to and, and, and teach them that way instead of, you know, the, you can't get those type of experiences from a textbook. For sure. And, it, you know, I, I've read endless articles or heard endless, you know, pieces of advice on different podcasts about, you know, financial wealth and stuff like that. And it all, they always center around this idea of, of having passive income to complement the active income and talk about like a learning, something that you had sitting there from a very young age, turning into something very tangible, right? At 15, 16 years old to see a stock turn into a car. I think that really explodes your understanding of finances when you understand, you know, you make the right investment at a certain point in time, down the line, it translates to real concrete things that impact your life, right? You know, in the future, it could be a car uh, could, or a home, let's say, or, you know, your the edu your education for your kids, right? Or whatever the case might be. It's very cool. I'm, I'm just, yeah. you know, floored by how how incredibly effective that that was. But from there, right, you carry that passion into university. Like you said, you kind of knew what you were, wanted to study, but you also had a pretty big loss. Um, how did that then, you know, conversely shape your understanding of finances? And I, I'm interested because you did end up taking a really big risk in your career down the line. But I, I would think that that maybe for a time being you know, reduced your risk profile when you, you kind of lost 90% of, of what you'd saved. Yeah. It's good discipline. You know, when you, when you make an investment, when you make a big decision in life, the evaluation process, right? So yeah. something as simple as a stock, you're looking at revenue, you're looking at the price to book price to earnings, whatever the metric is that you're focusing on, um, compared to deciding to get married or deciding to have children, a much right. more permanent, longer term decision. Um, you're still going through that, that process of, pros and cons. And, um, you know, having in, in your heart of hearts, if that really is the right thing for you and what you really want to do. Yeah. Um, the, the, the graduation money, you know, let's say it was a thousand dollars lost 900 of it. Um, didn't feel good at the time, but 
here, here we are all these years later, you and I having this conversation about it, it's stuck with me. And so that's yeah. always in the back of my mind when it's particularly when it's a financial decision. Um, so right now, I'm, I'm in the throes of the the bear market in cryptocurrency, uh, right. mostly in Bitcoin. And so I'm, I'm mentally going through that process again and again. And I feel very comfortable with it. Um, I'm okay with my current loss in Bitcoin. But there's also that that stepping stone where you, you can't go too far, right? I right. can't go go all in, bet the farm, so to speak. Um, people do that. I don't encourage it. I've never done that in my life. I will never do that just because of that discipline. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think that it can be extrapolated outside of finance as well, right? Like to always oh, understand sure. the types of risks that you're taking and, and having some sort of contingency planning uh, in place. Uh, mm-hmm. sometimes though the big risks are rewarded, right? And, and so it's all about understanding what is, is good for you as the individual. But, you know, so from there, obviously you, you go into your financial planning career. I think you said 13 years you spent in that world. And mm-hmm. over the course of that though, um, you did obviously develop a passion for watches. And so mm-hmm. walk me through how it went from just something that was a material item that you maybe were passionate about and developed a collection around to something that you actually wanted to jump into and, and transition your career into. Because as you said, so you had something stable, something that you could rely on. It was a sure bet. I'm sure you had great growth in that career, right? Um, the fact that you were able to curate a collection of watches during that means you're doing pretty well, right? Uh, particularly if you were you know, going to buy a band from Everest, right? Uh, given the types of watches that they make bands for. So then from there, right, to make that leap, your the passion must have grown exponentially. And so tell me about how that happened and, and the journey that you went on there. Tremendous passion um, to get to that point. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, the part that really kicked it off was taking it upon myself to create a group of watch enthusiasts that would meet on a regular basis. So I could, you know, scratch the itch for myself, but then also yeah. have the ability to meet more people. I thought it was a, maybe a creative way in my financial life to prospect as well. Oh, you know, people who, yeah, people who can afford nicer watches, hopefully it's their disposable income, which means they have investable assets and they need a, a certified financial planner to help them with it. And so, so I started that, um, it almost didn't work. I was going to give up on it and I thought now nah, we'll go a couple more months. And then that was kind of the turning point where more people started getting interested, getting involved. I yeah. leveraged social media to meet people. And so we would meet like on the first Wednesday of every month and 15, 20 people would show up. And it was a nice thing because you you would have a lot of value in terms of the watches on the table, but there was this redeeming quality of trust right. that you could walk into a basically a group of strangers, but because of your shared passion for watches, you can hand over this say twenty thousand dollar timepiece yeah. because you know the person that's you're handing it to has that passion as well, and there's that instant bond and that instant trust there. And that's wonderful, you know, especially with all the crazy stuff going on in the world today that of course. Um, you, you have that ability to, um, to, to seek that out in other people. And so, um, so that part of it is, is really what propelled me forward. And then, um, like I said, just, just getting deeper down the rabbit hole and, and deciding to buy this Everest strap for my watch and meeting my now, my now business partner. Um, that's, you know, talk about a, a fortuitous event or yeah. serendipity. That's, that's it explained right there. Um, had that not happened, we wouldn't be sitting here probably having this conversation. Absolutely. And so in meeting your, um, 
you know, in, in meeting Michael, your future business partner, uh, through the purchase of that, that band, what was it that as you assessed, you know, this individual as a potential or prospective business partner, you know, what were the, the traits or characteristics that made you confident that this was the right decision? Because I think that that is one of the biggest things, right? When somebody has an idea for starting a business or a startup or otherwise, and they're looking for partners, right? That can make or break whether the idea comes to life or whether the business idea comes to life. So in, in this case, how did you assess, uh, you know, Michael's an individual, I'm sure he in the same moment was assessing you, right? And, and what were, I guess, those traits or characteristics that made you feel like this was the right person to move forward with? Yeah, a lot of things. Um, I've always believed one of my strongest attributes is my ability to judge character. And yeah. that that takes a lot of time to build that. That's not something that you just all of a sudden say, hey, I'm a really good judge of character. Yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, body language, eye contact, um, just as you get to know someone, if, if you can understand if they're telling the truth or not, or if they are, are open to tell you about some of their failures and can right. do it humbly and tell you how they learned from it. And he's always been very good about that. And so, um, and, and it takes time, you know, this was probably about a year and a half process from where we first met to when we started having serious conversations about me quitting finance and, and coming to work with him. Right. And so, um, we had a lot of coffee meetings, um, a lot of afternoon meetings after work. And then just to make sure that it was a really good fit, um, I had him and his wife and his children over to the house for dinner so that my wife could meet them. Right. And then I could get her opinion, kind of a second opinion, because I was, you know, I was getting excited about it. And well, you know, I, I trust myself a lot, but um, I also trust my wife implicitly. So I wanted to have her, yep. her feedback on it as well. And so, um, so it was a, a slow process appropriately. And then, um, and then it really came down to um, me losing some satisfaction with the the finance aspect of my career. And I was 34, 35 years old at the time and thought this is the last time where I could take this kind of risk because if I fall on my face, I still have enough time to, to get back up and make something of myself. And, um, I still don't know looking back quite how I had the courage to do that, but I'm yeah. sure glad I did. Yeah. And, um, another thing that, that is really nice that I'm also very proud of is that, you know, Michael and I started out as friends and then we became business partners and we're even better friends because of it. Oh, and wow. Yeah. That is something very unique. You know, as I've gotten older and I've met a lot of other business owners and I've heard a lot of horror stories about business partnerships that fail. And so he and I just kind of instinctively are always very quick to tell each other like anything and everything so that there's no chance of, you know, one of us feeling left out or that something was ambiguous or what, you know, um, just, just full disclosure, full transparency at all yeah. times. Like, you know, he'll, he'll call me into his office and tell me about something. And sometimes I'm like, you don't need to, you don't need to tell me this or show me yeah. this. Like, I trust you to do it. He's like, I know, but I just, I want you to know. And so then I find myself being like, Hey, by the way, I did this, this, and this. And he's like, okay, great. But you didn't need to tell me, but I'm like, let's just keep that up. Yeah. Um, I reminded him last week, there's uh, the movie rocket man about Elton John. That's right. And the, the thing that stuck with me in that movie is that he and Bernie Taupin over decades and decades, like never had a fight, never had a falling out. Um, they stayed in their lane. They knew what each other was good at. Right. And so, um, so a couple times a year, I just, I just remind him, I'm like, 
Bernie and Elton, Bernie and Elton. Let's just, let's just keep, keep kicking ass and taking names. <laughs> no, I love that. And, and yeah. I think that kind of what you're articulating that, that trust, that, um, incredible ability to communicate, right. And be that openly and kind of radically transparent is, is probably what's necessary for a thriving, you know, partnership in, in the business world, especially for, you know, such a passion driven, uh, endeavor, like even Everest and now Monta, right. Both of those, uh, you know, you don't do them because you think you're going to make money off of them. You do them because you deeply care about the product and the space, right? Otherwise, right. Yep. you know, uh, the the uphill battle is simply too steep to, to make it worthwhile, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, so from that perspective, the approach that you described there that you have in your partnership, I think makes total sense. Um, and it, it sounds so simple and easy, right? Like for right. an outsider, you know, but it's, it's not. And I, and I don't know how to explain that part to someone else Yeah, because you just good people, I think their instincts are usually right. Yeah. And, um, and you know, if, if you, if you do the right things and you're open and you're honest and you're transparent, you can avoid a lot of these pitfalls, but, um, gosh, a lot of people just, they just don't do that. <laughs> like I said, I don't know how to explain it to anyone. Other, you know, it just sounds like on the outside looking in, you're like, Oh yeah, well that makes sense. But yeah, now having been on the inside and trying to convey that to someone, um, that's, that's probably one of the greatest qualities you can have is, 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 as I say, it's, it's a better compliment to be trusted than it is to be loved. Oh, wow. That is very powerful. Um, very powerful. Uh, and I'm definitely walking away with that as a key learning from this conversation, but you know, from there, I'd love to pivot then to, you know, from Everest, right. You spend about a year working together on that, but I feel like Mm -hmm. you almost immediately had to be talking about starting Monta and maybe talk a little bit about how the, the, the discussion transitioned from Everest and, and I'll quick tangent have had the opportunity to handle one of these bands. And for anyone who's listening, who's not a watch person, it's very difficult to explain, you know, how to justify a $300 piece of rubber that you attach to a watch to wear on your wrist. But these are the most supple, high quality feeling rubber bands I've ever handled. And so um, I understand it. And, and, but then from that, right, to transition to, to Mont as a watch brand, maybe talk about how you guys came to the collective understanding of what the ethos of Montez a brand was going to be, what the positioning was going to be, the design language, and ultimately, how did you transition, like I said, from Everest to, to Monta, and, and what was that path like? So it's probably one of the better parts of the, the whole story. Um, when, when I told Mike I was going to leave finance and I was going to come work with him on this, um, he had actually already created Monta. He had the idea. He had the prototype of our first-generation Ocean King already in the works. Right. And kind of what, what really built that trust from the very first day is he told me, you don't want to come over and work with Monta right now. It's a startup. It could fail mm-hmm. and it would ruin our friendship and, and it just wouldn't be a good look for you. And I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And so the plan was, Justin, you come over and run Everest while I get Monta off the ground. Ah. And so we're like, okay, let's, let's do this. Um, Everest was established at that time. I think we had 180 retailers around the world with yeah. a very strong presence on our own website. And so I was basically going to be in charge of sales. And then he was going to teach me the day to day so that about a year in or so I could, I could take over operationally. And so January 3rd, 2017, I started a couple months later, we went to Basel world, which was the biggest watch show in the world at the time. Yeah. And, um, Everest did very well and Monta did very poorly. And we get home early April and he's about ready to just throw the whole thing in the trash can. And there was a lot of money in R&D already invested into this. So it was a very difficult decision for him. 
And I told him the Triumph was the second model that debuted at that at that show in Switzerland. It's right. a field watch. It's a little smaller. It was a lower price point, very casual. And I told him, we, we can sell a thousand of these things. Like, let's, let, let's stick with this. Um, let's shift it to an online only model. And that's when he said, well, do you want to, do you want to buy in, become an equity partner? I said, absolutely. And I'm not kidding you, Peter, within three hours, like later that afternoon, we had it all squared away. I called my former team at Morgan Stanley. I said, wire the money. I'm doing this thing. And, um, and the next day we, we just started hatching the plan, shifting online only, not to yeah. the retailers. Um, this is for Monta specifically. Everest was going to stay the same way as it was. Right. And, um, yeah, just, just hit the ground running, reached out to any influencer was laser focused on social media and email marketing, uh, trying to get good content out there. And, um, by the end of 2017, I retired from Everest, if you will, and, and went full-time on Demonta, which, you know, looking back, I took a pay cut to go from, uh, Morgan Stanley to Everest. And I took another pay cut to go from <laughs> Everest to Monta. And I remember having these awkward conversations with my wife and, uh, it, it would kill me those first like year, year and a half. She would ask, I mean, like every day, how many watches did you sell today? And yeah. when I had to say none, I, I, I felt like a failure. Right. But I yeah. used that as motivation. And now six years later, I'm proud to say that it's been a couple of years since she's asked that question because right. we sell, we sell at least one watch almost every day now. And, um, so that to me is another kind of uh, feather in the cap where I, I knew I made the right decision in hindsight and I, I knew I'd get there. Oh, I mean, that's it, such a, such a cool story. And, uh, you know, that sort of perseverance and then belief in the product, right? I think um, I'd love for you to articulate it, particularly like kind of the Monta brand positioning and and what its distinguishing kind of value proposition is. Because the first thing anyone, if they were to Google Monta and read a review is it has one of the most comfortable and uh, unique bracelets in the watch industry, which doesn't surprise me given that it's born out of Everest, right? Which is built right. on the same proposition. So uh, I, I'd love to hear you articulate that and just kind of where Monta, in your opinion, is positioned in the broader watch market, because it is very much, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to, you know, to the average person say that a 2000 to $4,000 watch is entry level luxury, because that's an enormous amount of money objectively. Right. But in the world of watches, that is very much entry level luxury. Right. So I'd love to kind of hear how you guys strategically uh, view the positioning of Monta. So Monta was always positioned as very high quality attention to detail. And then yes, at a, at an approachable price point. Um, the manufacturers that we use aren't just good. Okay. They are the best. And the manufacturers that we use for our dial, our hands, the case and bracelet, uh, the crystal, the gaskets, the crown, the tube, all the components that go into it, the movement in particular, they're all used by, the, the big brands, you know, right. quote unquote, that you see on magazine ads and everything else. And so we have all of the, the makings um, to be one of the legacy brands. We just don't have the history and the heritage. And so we're building that day by day. But the other thing we do incredibly well is customer service and then what we call is the connectivity to the brand. Yeah. So you're attracted to a Monta watch because of the style, because of the colors, because of the materials, the things, you know, aesthetically that bring you in. And then thankfully, most of our customers are buying these sight unseen as an online only brand. They're relying yeah. on a YouTube video, an Instagram influencer, 
or a friend of theirs, or maybe they've come to one of the shows that we attend around the world. So they've gotten some hands-on time with it. But um, once you get past that, it's really all downhill because as I always say, feeling is believing. So when right. you can feel the articulated links in the bracelet, when you can play with the quick adjust class mechanism, when you can turn a bezel or a crown, and then you can get close and see the faceting on the hands and the markers on the dial. Um, that's where it all, it, it, it crystallizes in, in the, the owner's hand and in their brain. And, and then that connectivity to the brand is really steps in, right? So right. you can see us on a regular basis on social media. You've got a direct line to the ownership team, pick up the phone, call our office and ask for me or Michael. We're, we're here Monday through Friday. Yeah. Um, when we travel to the shows, we reach out to customers in those cities and we take them to dinner. Um, we're very good about email communication and, when we launch a new product, we want to make sure everybody's in the know. And, uh, and then we do little things like, uh, we've, we've kind of created this little cult with our, our hats. Everybody always wants our, our Nike golf hats with the Monta logo on it. Yeah. And, um, all those things that for us as watch enthusiasts, we wanted from the brands that we adored, but they were missing. Right. Um, you know, as, as I get that as any business grows, those, those little touches are, are harder to do but we're going to stay on that for, for as long as we can. Right. And so, so now six and a half, seven years later, you know, some of these customers that have been with us, we, they're genuine friends. You know, um, I was down in Miami this year having dinner with one of our, our best customers and we text probably once a week and it's usually not about watches. It's about family or it's about work or sports or yeah. travel or cars or whatever it is you're into. And so, you know, I can't say Monta is like a lifestyle brand in the sense of, you know, all those things. But, but if you like watches, um, and, and you like what we're offering, you're going to be blown away by the quality, the attention to detail, the customer service and, and that connectivity to the brand. And, um, that's what motivates me every day is I'm very fortunate that, you know, they, they say you either love selling or you love what you sell. Yeah. I happen to be checking both those boxes where I sit currently. And, um, I love nothing more than engaging with our customers or, um, seeing them at these shows and, and having them tell me about what they've done the last year or the last two months, whenever it was since we last spoke, right. talking about what watch they took with them, why they took it or, you know, the birth of a child and they were wearing their Montel on that day. Yeah. And, um, that's what gets me. I always, I always say I like the watches, but I love the people. And I've even started this, this, this thing on our Instagram account where I put people greater than watches. Oh, and, very cool. um, that's, that, that's just what, what sticks out to me is like, like I said in the beginning, you and I probably never would have met, uh, in this world had it not been for, for this, right. this watch enthusiasm or hobby. And, um, sometimes I kind of have to pinch myself that I get to, I get to do that for a living on a daily basis. No, it's very cool. And I'll make a quick remark just before I jump into the next question I have. Uh, but just even as you were commenting on the fact that, you know, go for, going from JP Morgan and Stanley to, um, uh, to Everest, you took a pay cut. And then going from Everest yeah. to Monte, you took a pay cut. So you have that kind of downwards trend. But as you kind of tell me about your story from finance to Everest to Morgan, it seems your happiness is trending in the absolute opposite direction. It's this interesting intersection. I'm sure, obviously, the finances have bounced back. I have no doubt in that. Yeah. The enormous <laughs> success of Monta. But that is interesting just because, you know, you were sacrificing short-term financials for 
immediate and long-term happiness gains. And that's very obvious, even in the way that you tell the story and the way I can see kind of, you know, folks can't see your face as you're telling it, or, or but they, I'm sure they can hear the inflections in your voice. It's very clear that you have found like a beautiful intersection of passion and, and life's work with Monta, um, which mm-hmm. is just a cool observation for me to make as you tell the story. Um, it's like the, the Jerry Maguire quote in the movie when he's doing his manifesto and he says, you know, uh, less clients, less money, more personal attention. Yeah. And, um, that wasn't my goal when I, when I started out, but you know, when you, when you see the road in front of you, keep your eye on the prize. Yes. The, 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 the income is, is not as important as, as the happiness and, and, you know, people talk about success. How do you define success? And yeah, that's, that's as clear a picture as I can paint that it's, it's not about the money. The success right. is the fulfillment. It's the happiness. It's the balance. It's the control. Um, that's, that's the Holy grail. Very cool. So in terms of control though, uh, and I'll parallel this to, or, or pivot this to this idea of controlling the future of Monta, um, in the, within the space of luxury retail, you talk about making the shift of going, um, online only, direct-to-consumer online only. That's a big shift, especially in the world of luxury goods that, to your point, as you mentioned, they really do need to be touched and felt to be fully understood, especially something like a watch. And there are endless other examples in the luxury retail industry or luxury goods industry. But in the watch world, we've had this huge shift of boutique uh, or independent brands like, like Monta and others starting out or moving to online only because of obviously the cost effectiveness of that and all these other means to create connection and gain awareness with the prospective customer base. But we also have big brands right now transforming their in-store experiences, not specific to watches, but all types of luxury goods. And we have a resurgence of focus on what the in-person interaction with brands looks like, as well as what digital looks like. I guess I'm curious to your comment around wanting to keep intact this kind of lifestyle or relationship building you do with clients as long as possible. What do you see as Monta continues to scale being the future of how the brand is interacted with, whether it be online only, what does the in-person interaction look like? And then, you know, in spite of the fact that yes, Monta's positioned as kind of entry level luxury, the type of interactions you described, that to me sounds like some the most luxurious experience possible. I get direct contact with ownership. I get interaction with ownership when they're in my city, right? Like that to me is, you know, as a brand experience, I I haven't heard of that from any other product, right? Forget just within watches. So what is the future of, of kind of Monta's positioning and strategy and retail look like as these kind of experiences evolve? It's going to be more of, of the same, but in more volume, and and then hopefully more products right Right. as we continue to grow the monta collection so right now there's three shows throughout the year there's san francisco in the spring chicago in the summer and new york in the fall and these are put on by worn and wound that's right Uh, it's a watch blog but they've also you know become kind of a a global media company i guess uh podcasts and, and and all the like and so, so we'll continue to do those. And I think they're going to probably try to add one or two to the calendar. Um, yeah. I know there's been talk about potentially doing one overseas or maybe even in Canada and we'll be there for all of those. I mean, we look forward to those shows throughout the year. It's, you know, I would say it's kind of like we get to have Christmas three times a year now with these shows. <laughs> and, um, so continuing to do that and, um, and we will explore physical retail ideas, um, probably not our own boutique, but 
um, you know, rolling out into jewelry stores uh, that are very well established that have a similar clientele and a similar mindset. Right. Um, that's going to be a slow process because yeah. we don't want to mess it up. And it's, you got to find the right partner. And then the, a lot of the heavy lifting has been done already. That's not to say that there's not going to be more heavy lifting, but I've been reminding people just to, in the last year, now that we've really established ourselves these first six or seven years, you can't fake the reviews. You can't fake the YouTube stuff. Yeah. Um, social media in particular, everybody's very quick to comment on there. And, and look, I know, I know we're not perfect, but I know we're excellent. Yeah. And so when mistakes are made, we're going to fix them very quickly. And, and, and I don't hide behind that. You know, we had a, uh, a gentleman today who just emailed in, received his watch a couple weeks ago and it's running a little fast. And, um, so we're going to, we're going to take care of that for him. We're going to send him a label. He's going to send it in, got a full-time watchmaker on staff here. That's going to take care of it and send it right back to him. So, so as much hands-on as we can, but, um, the, the, the landscape is changing. You know, there's like this, I don't know what the time period is, but like catalogs get really popular and then they kind of go out of style and then they come back and then they disappear. We'll see if, if, if physical like catalogs, you know, I think like restoration hardware sends these giant like phone book size catalogs clearly it works for them or they wouldn't waste the money doing it. That's right. And, and so we'll see if, if that happens again, but clearly the online models are, are here to stay for a while, For sure. Um, certainly in our lifetime. And so, so we're just going to continue to do what we've always done there, which is high quality imagery and video trying to give you that, that real life approach as best we can, and then be here to answer questions and, and then let the reviews speak for themselves. Absolutely. And I, I think that's, that's really interesting in terms of the, how you talked about finding the right partner um, to re-enter the boutique uh, kind of retailer space. Uh, just because I had an experience in September, I was in, in, in London, uh, England for work. And I, you know, I went into a luxury watch retailer and they had a bunch of brands. I was looking at a couple of different watches and the person that happened to come up and offer their help it had to have been like their second week on the job and they knew nothing about yeah. any of the watches. Right. And, and it was almost frustrating because as I picked up these watches, I would have liked to engage with someone who knew as much or more than I did. Right. And when I think about the watches I was looking at, you know, tech Hoyers or JLCs or two doors or whatever they were um, at the time, you know, those often they sell themselves, right? Right. You, mm-hmm. you, if you're an enthusiast, you've done the research, you know, which one you want. There's a design that speaks to you. It's an iconic classic or whatever. But when it's a, a newer brand that doesn't have the heritage that sometimes needs to be talked through, right? That experience could have, could have ruined the conversion, right? Because Correct. that individual yep. may not have known anything. So the, the exact point you're making, it has to be the right partner because because that type of experience would make or break somebody's relationship with your brand. So how do you do that sort of assessment and find the right partner? Uh, Because even once you do, I'm sure not all retailers within that boutique will be made equal, right? So it's like, how how do you assess that? For the watch industry in particular, you look, or at least we look to what the big brands have done. So the most successful, the Rolex, Patek Philippe, Audemars mm-hmm. Piguet, Breitling, those type of brands, the, the jewelry stores that have those within their store, you know, they have 
a Rolex um, right. boutique within their store, for example. Right. Those are the easiest ones um, because we'll let the the, the bigger brands uh, kind of weed through them and, and make sure that these are the type of stores they want to do business with because yeah. of how long they've been there, their staff, their knowledge, all of that. And, um, and, and just start there and, and whittle it down. And I think we're looking at, you know, only one to three per year when yeah. we get to that point. It's not like we're going to go into 2024 and try to add 10 retailers in one year. Just, just not, not possible, not even from an inventory standpoint. And, um, the other thing we want to do that I, I failed to mention earlier is we get a lot of overseas orders. And so we're looking to add a third party logistics company in the EU. Mm. that can fulfill those orders so that those folks don't have to worry about that or any import tax when it's delivered. And um, we thought we had that in place last year and we just ran out of time. Um, Oddly enough, we had inventory in Switzerland that was going to go there, but then we ended up having to have it shift here because we needed to fulfill all the domestic orders anyway. And I think that's where our biggest growth can come from is, is satisfying the overseas market. Um, we just shipped two orders to Singapore just today alone. Very cool. And so I think we've shipped to 44 different countries. And so that tells anyone who's listening that, yeah, the online sales, the fact that people in, in 43 different countries other than the United States are yeah. finding our products and buying our products. And um, it's it's amazing. That must be an incredibly satisfying thing. And, yeah. you know, there are... The American kind of watch brand to it, it, there's been a little bit of a resurgence with a couple of different brands popping up, but still, um, you know, people who are in the watch world, they look to the Swiss made, right? Obviously, that's like the, the pinnacle, right? But then you have the Grand Seikos of the world that, you know, uh, are the peak of Japanese engineering and design. But, you know, there are not a ton of other countries out there producing high-end stuff that gets global attention. So it is, must be an incredibly satisfying thing to overcome that kind of uphill battle and see that sort of attention and success for, for the Monta brand. That and the, the micro brand terminology has been around for a while. Yeah. And we, we've been in that category and, and rightfully so. I think there's two ways to categorize micro brand. It's going to be if if it's if it's run on a day to day basis by one of the founders, the owners, and they're selling less than two thousand watches per year, okay, that's that's loosely defined as as micro brand. But I I number one, I'm always blown away that people refer to us as the king of the micro brands. Um, very flattered, and I'll I'll proudly uh, take that that yeah. title. I think we're more moving into the independent brand segment. Right. What I alluded to earlier with the manufacturers that we work with, just the level of quality that you're going to find in a Monta right. timepiece is not a micro brand definition. Right. And so, so that independent brand uh, definition, I guess, and, and that's not an official term, right? That's not like a, uh, an industry standard. But I think that's where a lot of people view us at this point. Interesting. And so I'm curious also on uh, uh, how does Monta view partnerships or kind of collaborations now and maybe in the future? Because uh, another watch manufacturer of which one of the founders I've been able to have on the podcast, Simone Nunziato of Unimatic, that's very much their bread and butter. They have these Mm -hmm. very curated uh, collaborations they do with various different brands. You know, whereas Montev has a very pure design language, right? From mm. Triumph to Atlas to Ocean King to um, uh, to your GMT, 
right? Like you could tell it's a Montel almost immediately by bracelet, by crown, et cetera. So how do you view or entertain the idea of collaborations now or maybe, you know, in, in the future? I wouldn't see us doing any collaborations within the watch industry, but I, I would certainly be open to, you know, something with an apparel company. Um, I mean, how cool would it be to do like a pair of, you know, Jordan one lows Monta inspired or something that would be, that would be magical. Um, my, my second grade self wouldn't, wouldn't even know what to say to that. (laughs) Um, and the one thing I guess is, I don't, you can't really call it a collaboration, but the the first step we've kind of taken towards this is we launched a pink dialed noble back in I'm October. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. And we're donating 10% of the proceeds of that pre-order to breast cancer ah, charities. Very My cool. business partner's mother is a survivor. And, um, so that, that's kind of our first, you know, not solely focused Monta piece of business there. And, um, and that just makes all the sense in the world. That's something yeah. we've wanted to do. We were finally in the financial position to make it happen. The stars were aligned with the timing and, and it's something that's very near and dear to us. So, um, so that's, that's the only collaboration, if you will, um, to date, but, um, I'm always open to it. We get emails pretty regularly from people I would imagine that so, yeah. do, yeah, that want to do something and it's, it's just gotta be the right fit. You know, it's, it, it can't be just because it sounds cool. It's, it's got to mean something. It's, it's got to have a greater good and a greater impact. Um, that's, that's what we want to, how we want to approach it. Very cool. Um, and you brought up uh, again, the, the sneaker topic. And so maybe I want to pivot into that very quickly. Uh, given that that was, you know, one of your first loves and the way that, how did that evolve over the course of your life? Cause very clearly something you're still very interested in or passionate about, and I guess what prevented you from pursuing some form of career in, in that space? Uh, because obviously there's a ton of opportunities and different avenues to, to exist in the sneaker world uh, from a working perspective. So I'm just very curious, mm-hmm. you know, was there ever any, any thought or any kind of exploration of what you could have done in the sneaker world? Not necessarily. I, I got to give credit to my mom for always inspiring me to to look my best, you know, to look put together yeah. and, and the, the idea that you only get one chance to make a first impression. So uh, that's always been with me. Grade school, high school, I, w- I was voted best dressed in my senior oh, class. Cool. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I had always thought about ideas that I had, but never a, a career that I would have gone after. Yeah. Um, but for a guy who wore a suit and tie every day for 13 years at Morgan Stanley, it's really nice to come to the Monta office with my sneakers and jeans and a hoodie on. Yeah. And, um, it's funny too, because my, my older daughter remembers when I wore a suit and tie every day. Right. And so, so the, the two great takeaways from that is number one, it's always funny to me when she thinks I'm dressed up because I have like a button down tucked in you know, that, that, that's dressed up now. Yeah. Um, but number two is that she assimilates that to what I'm doing now. Right. Like that I, there was that break in yeah. the way that dad dresses, which symbolizes taking the risk to do, to do the watch passion project. And, um, so, so I love that, that she, she's always going to have that. My little one was too young to remember it. Right. But, um, but yeah, now, now I, I, I still enjoy going to get coffee in the morning dressed as I am today and, you know, see these guys in their suits and ties. 
Cause I used to be that guy and yeah. I would look at me and be like, what does that guy do? And why is he dressed so casually on a Monday? Yeah. Um, and now, now that I am, that guy is a, it's a nice little subtle reminder of, of the win. No, that's very cool. That's very yep. cool. And, um, I, I want to nerd out a little bit though now on, on watches quickly, just selfishly, because, uh, obviously the sky quest relaunched new mm-hmm. kind of new iteration, uh, very recently. And one thing that I find at least for, you know, enthusiasts that especially look at kind of watches in that sub $5,000 space, the, the ceramic bezel is all important, right? And you guys made a design decision to move away from that. And it's interesting because obviously you have the explosion of the Black Bay uh, model line with Tudor, none of which have a, a ceramic bezel and at a much higher price point. And I'm curious what went into, into that decision because aesthetically it obviously works perfectly and the watch looks fantastic. But, right, there is that perception of value associated with having a ceramic bezel versus aluminum. And I'm curious how you guys manage that with the decision being maybe what was best for the design, but maybe having some negative connotation around it from a value perspective. Or maybe that didn't exist. I'm not sure. But I'm very curious how the decision was made. Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, uh, and I'll kind of jump around a little bit. But sure. when we had the previous generation SkyQuest, which was originally launched in 2018, and we ended that basically starting uh, this year, 2022, um, we decided to cap it off with this limited edition run of uh, 50 black gilt dials and 50 opaline gilt dials, right. both with a bicolor aluminum bezel insert. And that was just kind of having fun and, and celebrate it. Again, that, that connectivity to the brand, give our loyal customers something really cool that's very unique and very limited. And we were able to do that because the company in Switzerland who produces those aluminum bezel inserts is impossible to do business with. I mean, they, ah. they only do business with the biggest and the best. And it's the second time in Monta history that we've been able to get a door like that to open to us. The other one was our hand manufacturer. We had to beg our hand manufacturer to make our hands. And, uh, and luckily they did and they, and they still do to this day. But the aluminum bezel manufacturer uh, in, in Switzerland is, is very impressive. Um, both the quality of the work they do, plus having been in their facilities a few right. times. And so with the success of that, it was like, okay, well, clearly we've, We've got somewhat of a lightning in a bottle situation here. Naturally, with the new SkyQuest, we have to incorporate that somehow. Yeah. And so we took a lot of heat with the design decisions that we made with the new SkyQuest. And uh, we can really nerd out here and I'll I'll get down in the weeds for some of the the people who are listening who are really into this. But um, we really wanted to make it more sporty. And so we made some changes there. Um, But what we found out is with if you imagine if you're if the watch is on your wrist and you hold it out in front of your head and you're looking at it um, sideways, so the crystal is like flat, the pitch of the bezel is very important when considering ceramic because right. if the bezel is pitched too much like a roof, the light just bounces off of that ceramic and it it kind of makes it not as legible as it should be. Right. And so in that design decision, we were like, okay, well, aluminum with the matte tones and the matte finishes there, it's not going to have that reflectory. Uh, a reflection capacity to it. And so, um, so we said, well, let's just do aluminum. It's, it's so popular. We've got this fantastic manufacturer. We can also do these bi colors where it's the top half is one color. The bottom half is a different color. And 
when we prototyped it, Michael and I both were, we were just head over heels in love with it. I mean, we, we thought it was fantastic. Um, so when we announced the SkyQuest, um, it was met with a, a fair amount of criticism, probably the most we've, we've had in our, in our company history. And part of that is just when you come out with something new and it's, yeah. it's, it's different for people, there's a little bit of a disruption there. But also, we didn't do the best job, admittedly, on the launch. And it wasn't that we got lazy or, or anything like that. It just... Um, the timing wasn't good. We only had a few prototypes to shoot the photo assets for the website. We didn't really have mm-hmm. any to give out to to YouTubers. And so lesson learned, obviously. But then number two is once people got to see it in person, particularly at the the wind up show in New York, yeah, um, when we had people that came through here at the office and got to see it, then it made sense. Yeah. And um it was kind of I wouldn't say it was scary, but we were sitting there second guessing ourselves for a while thinking, did we screw this up? How were we feeling so good about it this summer and so in love with it? And then we, we give it to the world and that some of people, yeah. are like, well, we don't love it as much as you love it. The good news is six months later now that has, has pretty much turned around and yeah. it was our most successful pre-order in hindsight. And, and people are still continuing to order them today and, and getting very excited about it. So, um, so the new sky quest is, um, I think it's the best watch we've made to date. Yeah, that's very yeah. cool. And, and I mean, the the taking that sort of risk, but uh, but believing in what you've created and the decisions you've made, right? Uh, and seeing it through in spite of maybe some of the challenging reception initially, like Watch World or anywhere else, that's something that companies are going to go through. And I think it's um, you know it's it's interesting to hear how you guys. We're able to then turn that around by just eventually getting it out into the hands, having people see and feel it, understand the product and the design decisions. And I think the lesson learned there is sometimes it takes a little bit of time for for something new to percolate before it becomes beloved, right? Versus, you know, I think it's obviously very exciting to get the immediate adoration that you kind of hope for. But, you know, as we know, even with movies, for example, sometimes not loved initially, but become a cult classic over the course of who knows how long, right? That's um, a great example. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it's very cool here. And so I, I'll maybe just out of curiosity, your most successful or best watch maybe, but what, what would your favorites, uh, Monta be to date that you guys have put out? Cause for example, for myself, I'm absolutely in love with the Atlas, uh, that kind of simple, uh, almost field watching design, but kind of that daily driver with the GMT complication. I think it's beautiful. Um, the simplicity of it. So I'm curious to, to hear what your favorite to date would have been. So, so if I had to only pick one, yeah, it would be a noble. And oh, cool. I, I, if you'll allow me, I, I would be really hard pressed between the blue and the anthracite. I would probably, I would beg to say, can I just have both of those? So I've got a little differentiation, but the noble, the size, the styling, yeah. all the details we did with the new handset and the the dual marker at 12 o'clock, that to me is is the one I could very happily wear every day for the rest of my life. Yeah. I, and I caveat, totally get it. Yeah. Caveat being that the, I've been wearing the new SkyQuest pretty consistently because it's the newest one. So of course, of course, it'll be interesting a year from now. If, if I can still say noble over SkyQuest. Um, of course, by then we'll have a new Ocean King in the collection too. So 
uh, might be kind of hard. I always tell people, it's like, you know, which one of my kids do I love more? You can't answer that. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the luxury right that you have is you get to have one of all of them anyways, right? It's so, true. which is yes. awesome. But I, yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, either the Noble or Atlas has got to go with the anthracite that touch of blue against the anthracite is just, uh, you know, stunning. So I, mm-hmm. I, I totally understand that. Um, you mentioned it again, though, uh, in terms of, and a couple times in terms of working with the absolute best in terms of your manufacturing partners, whether it be your hand manufacturer or then the bezel manufacturer as a smaller company, initially a micro brand. Now I would also argue an independent brand, you know, whether it's in the watch world or elsewhere, there are, there are companies out there who want to work with partners that work with the best in their industry. What was your pitch? How did you open the door towards those manufacturing partnerships? I'm curious, how did, I guess, what, what did you lean into to help open that door and ultimately uh, create the opportunity to, to, to create the partnership? All the credit to that goes to, to my partner, Michael. He's the one who handles all of that. We do have a designer in Switzerland who's pretty deeply connected in the industry. And so yeah. he helps with that. But the other thing is when you go to those Swiss partners, we were able to point to Everest and say, we've been doing business in Switzerland for 10 years making rubber and leather straps. So they know that we're not a fly by night one time thing. You know, we are an established company that is looking to make a long-term product and do business with them. And, you know, the Swiss traditions go way, way back hundreds of years. And so there is some, there is some value to the, the time commitment, uh, no pun intended. And, um, and then I think also they appreciate and respect the designs that we're trying to achieve. It, it aligns well with, with the Swiss watchmaking heritage and history. And, um, you know, we always make the joke with being Americans and, and going over there and we yeah. don't speak French or German because Switzerland's kind of split 50, 50. Luckily they all speak good enough English that they can understand us. So we always kind of make the joke when, when we're leaving, you know, like they're mumbling to themselves, Oh, stupid Americans are back, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, but we have fun and, and, and I'm also really glad that some of those people have, have become friends. You know, we go to dinner with them when we're over there in Switzerland and, um, and they can give us honest, straight feedback on, on some of the things we're working on. And it's a, it's a very good collaborative effort. That's very cool. And I guess from there, I'll ask a question just that maybe not necessarily to do with the watch aspect of, of kind of your career journey, but now, you know, you worked in the financial uh, industry, then going to Everest, you, you moved into a pretty kind of senior role and now growing Monta. How have you managed the, the leadership aspect of this? Because as you kind of grow the teams of Everest or Monta, right, you then also now needing to focus on helping grow the careers of the people who are, you know, you're bringing on to the team and creating a culture inside of these organizations that people want to be part of. I think, you know, I've seen over and over again, uh, this idea of, you know, never meeting your heroes, but of people in my network who dream of working for a brand or an organization because of their legacy of brand or a product they produce. And then they get there. It's not at all what they expected. So you've got to obviously create a culture where people who are excited about Monta, you know, that want to come work there, the culture lives up to kind of the brand that they've envisioned. How have you helped uh, or how have you kind of scaled that or, or, or grown that and established that at Monta? It's, it's probably not anything revolutionary that, that hasn't been said before, but just more of the things that have worked over time, which is just always being transparent, open and honest, being respectful. Yeah. Um, you know, our, our watchmaker actually 
cold called us several years ago. And at that time we really didn't have a need or couldn't afford an in-house watchmaker, but we kept in yeah. touch. And over time he eventually came on board because we saw him cool. that he was, he was very good at what he does and, um, and his personality fit in really well. And, and we try to, you know, keep it a work hard, play hard type of mentality around the office. So, yeah. you know, we, we do lunch every Friday, we'll throw a happy hour every now and then. Um, Amanta and Everest were taking all the employees and, and their spouse or significant other to Florida, uh, after oh, the new cool. year for three nights. And, um, you know, Michael and I've always been in agreement that you hire the right people, you pay them really well, you give them what they need to be successful. You listen to them and, uh, and, and take care of them and, you know, always remind them that it's a two way street, right? Yeah. Like, if, if you're getting your work done and you're doing it effectively and efficiently and you're accountable, um, you know, we're not going to squabble over you coming in 15, 20 minutes later, leaving 15, 20 minutes earlier, or if you need a half day to go to the doctor or, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever the reason is, um, just making sure that everybody gets their work done and, uh, and make sure we're having fun at the same time. I think that makes total sense. And, and I think I agree that sometimes it's the simplest, most obvious things that are the most impactful in terms of keeping that or shaping that sort of, of, of culture. Um, you know, as we kind of come to an end in the conversation, I think what really excites me is just the, the obvious passion behind, uh, you know, in the person behind a brand like Monta and just the, the really cool story and, and how, you know, this intersection of passion and kind of what somebody's work is, is possible out there. And, and as I've been doing this podcast, it's been really exciting to see more and more examples of exactly that in different industries. And this one just happens to be one of those stories in the industry I'm, I'm very passionate about. So it's, you know, been an absolute pleasure. It's been a fantastic conversation, Justin. Really appreciate it. And honestly, look forward to having you back on in the future and, and seeing where Monta goes to from here. I would love that, Peter. Thanks again for the opportunity. And, and I know we'll keep in touch. 